I too would like to express my appreciation to you. You've been a very wonderful audience for these past two Sunday nights, and I trust that we will profit from the Word of God as we study it together again tonight. We've talked about the fact that God has made it possible for us to pursue holiness. We talked last week about some of the obstacles in the way, and tonight we want to discuss our responsibility. I'd like to begin this topic tonight by quoting to you from a book written or published in the year 1870. And the last time I saw the figures from the book, it had sold over two million copies. This author says this, Man's part is to trust. God's part is to work. Plainly, the believer can do nothing but trust. While the Lord in whom he trusts actually does the work entrusted to him. Now let's listen to what the scripture has to say. 2 Peter 1, verse 3 for God in his divine power has given to us everything we need for life and godliness. And then verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. And then as you recall, those of you who were here two weeks ago, Peter lists seven characteristics of the Christian life that we're to add to the faith which God has given to us. And then Paul, again the passage in Philippians chapter 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to act. The Christian life is not a choice between trusting and working. We must be careful that we never polarize our faith in God and our responsibility. It's not either trust or try, trust or work, but it's trusting as we work. This is the message of the scripture. And to say the very least, these words, plainly the believer can do nothing but trust, while the Lord in whom he trusts actually does the work, to say the least, those are unfortunate words. But you know, we like to be told this. We like to be told that we can't do anything because, you see, it relieves us of our responsibility. In the book, The, the Pursuit of Holiness, whoever did the uh, cover put on the back and picked up the words uh, or a thought from the preface of the book where I had said that the pursuit of holiness is a joint venture between God and man, between God and the Christian. And so on the back of the book, they have a, a subtitle, The Pursuit of Holiness, The Christian's Joint Venture with God. Several weeks ago, after a study on this subject, someone came up to me and said, Now, you say that holiness is a joint venture with God. Tell me, how much of it do you think is God's responsibility, and how much of it is our responsibility? That's a good question. 
I said to him, let me answer you in the words of Dwight L. Moody, when on some occasion he said, work as if everything depends on you, and then pray as if everything depends on God. You see, the Christian life is not a 50-50 proposition, or 60-40, or 40-60, or however you want to divide it. The Christian life is 100% you, and it's 100% God. Now, you may not be able to add that up, but that's what it is. It's 100% you, and 100% God. So let us never polarize faith and personal responsibility. The Bible teaches both. And if we wanted to tonight, I could spend this entire time focusing on passages that teach us how utterly dependent we are upon God. But I've chosen tonight to take some passages which teach us our responsibility to work as we trust and to trust as we work. What then is our responsibility in this pursuit of holiness? I think Paul gets right down to the nub of it in the passage that was read for us tonight, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. And I'm reading from the New International Version. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. The RSV says we're debtors, but we have an obligation to fulfill. We have something to do. We have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Our obligation, that which is our responsibility, is to put to death the misdeeds or the sinful deeds of the body. I want us to note, first of all, that this is something that we are to do. Paul says, you put to death the sinful deeds of the body. So the second thing is that we do this by the Spirit. He says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. What does that mean, by the Spirit? Well, first of all, it means under his direction. <clears throat> Our medieval ages and, and all that went on in, in, during those times under the name and the guise of religion was man trying to put to death the sins of the body himself. Paul gives us an illustration over in the second chapter of Colossians of what happens when we try to put to death the deed to the body. And those of you who have the, the King James Version will recognize the word mortify there. When we try to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Listen to what Paul says happens in Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? This is self-mortification, submitting to man-made rules. 
do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In other words, austerity of the body. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teaching. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But notice these words, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. When it's all said and done, Paul says, they are worse than useless. Therefore, the putting to death the sins of the body, the mortifying of the flesh, must be done under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And he does this, of course, through his word. But not only must it be done under his direction, it must be done by his enabling power. All efforts on our part without him are useless. He is the one who gives us the strength. He is the one who creates the desire. He is the one who enables us to put to death the deeds of the body, the sinful deeds of the body. And so it is by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. Now, the crucial question is, what does this phrase mean, put to death the sinful deeds of the body? This word, which is translated put to death or mortify, is used in six instances in the scripture. It actually appears a few more times in the Gospels, but there are parallel passages to the two that I want to a quote from in the, book, in the Gospel of Matthew. The first place the word appears is in Matthew 10, verse 21, where Jesus, in sending out the 70, warns them of the dangers that they will face and the trials that will come. And in this context, he says, brother will rise against brother. And he says, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And there is that word. The children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. The next instance that is, occurs is in Matthew chapter 27, verse 1. This is when Jesus was on trial before the chief priest, and it says, So the chief priest came to the decision to put Jesus to death. And there is that word, put Jesus to death. First Peter, the Apostle Peter uses it in First Peter 3.18, where he says, historically, Jesus was put to death in the body. Speaking again of the crucifixion. And then the Apostle Paul uses it three times. First of all, in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, he said, you died, or you were made to die to the law. That is, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, your relationship to the law as an, as an instrument of condemnation was forever and finally ended. And then the Apostle Paul uses it two more times in the passage which is before us tonight in Romans chapter 8, and then what is essentially a parallel passage in Colossians 3, 5, when he says, Put to death 
therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now, let's set aside for a moment Romans 8.13 and Colossians 3.5 because those are the passages we're looking at. And let's look at these other four. If you take these passages in Matthew and in 1 Peter and in Romans, I think we come to the conclusion that in each instance the word communicates a decisive, drastic action. It has a ring of finality about it, doesn't it? You put someone to death, that's the end of it. You do not moderate it. You do not subdue it. You put it to death. There is no pity. There is no sparing. There is simply a putting to death. And God, speaking through the Apostle Paul, says to you and me, this is what I want you to do with sin. I want you to put it to death. I want you to spare it not. I want you to have no pity on that sin which you secretly love. I want you to put it to death. And you're to do this each time your sinful nature rises up to respond to temptation. You put it to death. You say, how do we do this? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us a clue. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, and again I'm reading from the New International Version, and I've picked this translation for this series because of uh, it just brings out some of these thoughts so clearly some of these passages have become so familiar to us that we just rush right over them. And when we hear them in a little slightly different wording, sometimes it makes us sit up and take notice. But listen to Titus 2.11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no. Did you ever think about the gospel teaching you to say no? You know, we think of the gospel as the good news. That Jesus died for our sins. But here the Apostle Paul says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. That little two-letter word is the way we put sin to death. We say no to that temptation. But our problem is we don't like to say no to temptation. We like to sort of play with it. We like to sort of dally with it. And that, that word dally means to treat lightly. And this is what we like to do with sin. But we must act quickly and decisively every time we face a temptation. If we delay, we're lost with regard to that temptation. There is only one time to say no to temptation and to do it successfully, and that is the very moment you realize you're faced with it. 
the very moment that those sinful desires that we talked about last week rise up to respond to that temptation, we say, no, we put it to death. Now, a good part of our problem with sin is right here. We do not deal decisively with it. We want to play with it a little bit. We like to allow a little anger, a little lust, a little gluttony, a little resentment, a little envy. And we sort of play with this a little bit until by and by we're overpowered and we're taken by it and we fall into sin. And when we play with these things, as one writer said, we're fraternizing with the enemy. Did you realize that those temptations are enemies of your soul? Peter says in the second chapter of his first epistle, abstain from these sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And every time we play with a temptation, we're playing with the enemy that is waging war against our souls. And then, I'd like to point out that we're to put to death these sinful desires, these sinful deeds. We're not to put to death ourselves. We're not to put to death our personalities. Somehow, some Christians have gotten the idea that we must be crucifying ourselves, so to speak. In fact, about a month ago, <clears throat> we were over in Gunnison uh, speaking on this subject, and afterward, uh, a dear lady came up to me and she said, you know, she said, all my life I thought I had to crucify myself. And she said, it always bothered me. Somehow it just didn't quite seem Christian. And she said, finally tonight I see it's not myself, it's my sin that I'm to put to death. And I said, yes, that's right. We put to death the sinful deeds of the body. Now, if we're going to succeed at this, and it's not an easy task, if we're going to succeed at this, there are certain necessary ingredients that we must have in our character, in our lives. And one of these is commitment. Commitment is a firm, no turning back, no holes barred, resolution to put away the sin that so easily besets us. You or I have some besetting sin, something that has dogged our path for years, and we say, I've never been able to get victory over that sin. Maybe for a time, and then I fall back, and then I try again, and then I fall back, and so forth. But there comes a time when we have to commit ourselves to do something about that sin. The psalmist said, I thought on my ways, and I turned my feet unto thy commandments. I made haste, and I delayed not to keep thy statutes. I made haste, I turned my feet. I did not delay, I resolved 
to follow God in the path of obedience. Now this is very essential to putting to death sin. William Law, a writer of some time ago, I'm not sure exactly when he lived, <clears throat> but he wrote a book called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. And in that book he said something like this, and I'm paraphrasing, because uh, it was written so long ago you wouldn't understand it if I were to quote directly. <clears throat> but he said, if you will ask yourself, why are you not more holy, your own heart will tell you that it is neither through ignorance nor disability, but purely because you never thoroughly intended it. You never made a commitment. This is something we're always going to get around to. This is something we're going to dabble at. But we've never thoroughly made a commitment to a life of holiness. Let me give you an example of a commitment that one man made. A man by the name of Jonathan Edwards, who lived something over 200 years ago, just prior to the American Revolutionary War. Jonathan Edwards, <clears throat> during his life, in order to guide his Christian life, wrote out for himself 70 resolutions. This is one of them. Resolved never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. That is, if I knew that within the hour I would stand before God and face Him as my Savior and my Judge, would I do this particular act? And he said, Resolve never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Now, my friends, that is commitment. And this is what we're talking about when we talk about putting to death sin. We're talking about resolving to live a holy life. As much as it is in us that we will do this. But when we're faced with this resolution, when we're faced with this commitment, what happens? So oftentimes we begin to think of some secret little sin that we secretly enjoy. Maybe it's bitterness. Somebody has wronged us 15, 20 years ago. And we're unwilling to put that sin to death. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's materialism. But we are to resolve. We're to make a commitment if we're to succeed in putting sin to death. Now, underlying commitment is something else, and that's what I call conviction. Before you can commit yourself without reserve to the task of putting to death sin, you must have conviction that this is what God wants you to do. 
Now the word conviction has two meanings. One is to be convinced of error. We say, I was convicted of that, meaning my conscience smote me. The other is a strong persuasion or belief. We say that man has strong conviction. He's rock-ribbed in his belief. Now both of these, for the Christian, come from the Scripture. We are convicted of our error. The Scripture is profitable. It's inspired of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for convicting us of error. And also for creating within our hearts those rock-ribbed convictions that we're going to live by. Those of you who were here last Sunday night will remember the story of the parking meter. And you can believe that I have developed some conviction regarding the parking meter. The Spirit of God comes to us through His Word and He says, this is what God's Word says, this is how you are living, and this is what I want you to do about it. And through experiences such as this, we develop conviction. In the book, The Pursuit of Holiness, I tell a story of what happened to me with regard to income tax. My wife and I had moved here to Kansas, uh, from Kansas, from Missouri actually, uh, in the middle of the year. I had been living in Missouri, working in Kansas, and so I was subject to Kansas income tax. But because I was living in Missouri, the state of Kansas did not require my employer to withhold the income tax from my salary. Rather, I was to settle up at the end of the year. Well, we moved in July. And so, come the end of the year, and I'm working on my income tax, and I think, oh, hey, you know, I owe Kansas about 50 or $60 of income tax. And then this little thought came to me. You remember the deceitful heart we talked about last week? The old deceitful heart got his word in, and he says, Ha, oh, they'll never come to get it. And then the Spirit of God got his word in from Romans chapter 13, which simply says in very clear language, Pay taxes to whom taxes are due. And that day, as this little struggle went on in my heart for about five minutes, I formed a conviction regarding taxes. I did not know at that time that in just a few years I would be responsible for this area of the Navigators Organization and that it would be my responsibility to make sure that everything that we did and everything that we allow a donor to do was all straight and correct with the tax law. And many, many times I've had to say to someone, no, I'm sorry, 
we cannot do that. The tax laws will not allow it. And the reason that I have been able to do that is because God created in my heart a rock-ribbed conviction. And this is what we have to have if we're to put sin to death. I talked to a man this week, and he said, well, my problem is so-and-so. And then as he began to explain it, I could see that he wasn't sure whether it was sin or not. And so I said to him, well, Tom, the first thing you've got to do is to decide what God wants you to do. You've got to decide whether this is sin or not. And then if you decide, if the Spirit of God convinces you that it is sin, then you put it to death. But the reason you've been unable to put it to death is because you're not sure what God has to say about that subject. This means that we have got to be in the Word of God regularly, prayerfully, humbly, looking to Him to expose the sin in our lives, to create these convictions as to what His will is. And then this brings me to the next thing, and that is in order to put to death sin, you've got to have discipline. Now, we don't like this word discipline. And I think the reason we do not like it is because there have been some incorrect ideas about it. The word discipline has many meanings, but in the scripture, the three principal meanings are this. Child training. Paul says to the fathers that you are to raise your children in the discipline and the nurture of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, that's child training. <clears throat> the second use is what we would call self-control. We say he's a very disciplined person, and what we mean is he has control of himself. But the word that I would like to use with us tonight is the word <clears throat> which means to train or to exercise. First Timothy 4.7, Paul says to Timothy, train yourself in godliness. Discipline yourself in godliness. Again, I would just note in passing, this is something we must do. In Hebrews 5.14, the writer of the Hebrews speaks of the Christians who are mature who by constant use have trained themselves. They have disciplined themselves to distinguish good from evil. Hebrews 12.11 No discipline, and here the word is child training, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And here's that word trained or disciplined. The last use is a very interesting one. 
one we would hardly expect. Second Peter 1.14 The Apostle Peter, speaking of the false prophets, says they have hearts trained in greed. Hearts trained in greed. You know something? All of us are disciplined. Every day, we're disciplining ourselves one way or the other. Paul said to Timothy, discipline yourself in godliness. Peter says of these false prophets, they have disciplined themselves in greed. Because the word discipline simply means to exercise. In fact, that's what the King James Version uses. Exercise thyself unto godliness. And it comes from the Greek word which means to exercise. The same word from which we get our word gymnasium. You ever thought about it? That every day you're disciplining yourself in one direction or the other? Either to godliness or to unrighteousness? Every one of us are disciplined. These false prophets had disciplined themselves in greed. Oh, may it be said of us that we have disciplined ourselves, we have trained ourselves in righteousness and holiness. The whole idea here is exercise. In Hebrews 5.14 there, these people by constant use of the scripture is implied there by constant use of the scriptures have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil Hebrews 12:11 they have they have been disciplined and they say no discipline for now seems pleasant it's painful but later on after this process of discipline this process is over it produces a harvest of peace and righteousness to those who are trained by it. Now, what am I getting at? Simply this. You will not walk out of here tonight, if you haven't been doing this, you will not walk out of here tonight and start putting to death sin. It just doesn't come that way. It's not that easy. It's not that quick. If you learn to do this by exercise, by discipline, you get into the Word, and from the Word of God you form conviction regarding sin. And as a result of those convictions that you have formed, you commit yourself to put away that sin. And then you exercise. And then you know what you do? You fail. And so you start over again. And you do it again and again and again. And finally, you see God working this in your life. And you see that you are putting to death sin. And then you know what you do? You pat yourself on the back and you say, my, look how holy I am. No, you don't do that. When you see yourself putting to death sin, you know what you do? 
you look up and you say, oh my, the grace of God. It's 100% you, and it's 100%